Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Amy Lowe is a consultant for emotionally intense and highly sensitive people. She is the author of Emotional Sensitivity and Intensity, available in multiple languages, and The Gift of Intensity. Amy focuses working with emotional intensity, high sensitivity, and giftedness. Amy has trained in mental health, psychotherapy, art therapy, philosophical counseling, and mindfulness-based modalities. She has lived in different countries and has worked in hospitals, schools, and community mental health teams. As a coach, she works holistically, combining Eastern and Western philosophies with psychological and spiritual healing modalities such as Buddhism. Amy's credentials include a master's in mental health, graduate diploma in psychology, bachelor of social science and social work, certificate in logic-based therapy, and an advanced diploma in contemporary psychotherapy. She is the recipient of multiple scholarships and awards, including the Endeavor Award by the Australian government. She has been consulted by and appeared in publications such as The Psychologies Magazine, The Telegraph, Marie Claire, and The Daily Mail. Amy is the founder of Eggshell Consulting, working with intense people from around the world. All right, Amy Lowe, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, thank you. Thank you for having me on. You are very welcome. I'm so delighted to have you on the podcast today. As I may have mentioned by email to you, I stumbled across your podcast during a particularly challenging time that uh, I had been going through during COVID. And I found the topics that you have covered on your podcast and the guests you've had on just to be so helpful and and eye-opening. It's also really clear to me that you bring a deep passion to this area. And I thought it would just be so interesting to talk to you and learn a bit more about your lens on life, clinical work, et cetera. So again, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. Amy, I just wanted to start out by asking you a a little bit about how you understand uh, clients. Like, what is your theoretical orientation or maybe a little less formally? What's the framework that you usually use to conceptualize or, or understand your clients? Yeah, that's a really good and important question. Um, I practice what I call interpretive um, psychotherapy, and nowadays mostly I do coaching and consultation. But still, obviously, my thinking is going to be influenced by the training that I had in various models, no matter what I'm doing. Um, quite honestly, even when I'm just, you know, I, I don't go around analyzing people, but these frameworks, once they're in your head, they're in your head. So I'm always thinking about them. So there are quite a few frameworks that I have found to be helpful throughout the years, particularly resonates with. I know CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is is very, very popular nowadays. I don't tend to use it a lot. I mostly, now in terms of my thinking, I'm quite influenced by psychodynamic theories or object relations in particular, Um, but I don't follow through with a lot of the techniques, if that makes sense. I can explain a bit more of that. Um, By psychodynamic, I mean, I think about things like attachment, transference, which means, you know, uh, the projection that happens mutually in a context when two people get together. And again, it doesn't just happen in therapy. It also happens in any meeting between two minds. It happens a lot in romantic relationships and family relationships, to be honest. And 
also think about people's defense mechanism. And again, it's such a horrible jargon, you know, defense mechanism is, you know, like we're all defensive, but what that really is are just ways, some of them really healthy, that we've developed throughout the years to protect ourselves in this precarious, unpredictable world. Um, so that's that. Um, I think systemic theories also very much influence my thinking. The idea that people have roles in their family, um, people have particular dynamic patterns in family that they could get stuck in. Um, this, this I found a very helpful framework. Um, Jungian theories also inform a lot of my work. I know you have a little bit of interest in this yourself, as indicated in your email. Yeah. So things, ideas like persona, shadow, individuation really helps me, have really helped me understand the challenges people have. Um, I don't, although I said I am informed by psychodynamic theories, I don't practice the traditional psychoanalysis in the sense, you know, I don't have people lie on the couch. I don't have people close their eyes. And I also tend not to be very blank. I tend to be, I, I, could, I could say, you know, I'm, I could be quite active um, and I can have quite a bit of facial expressions. I also sometimes when I think it's beneficial, I would talk a little bit about myself. Now, I would always think about it before I do it to make sure it's not just me seeking counseling from um, <laughs> my clients. But sometimes it's useful to have a sense of shared humanity um, and sometimes talking a little bit about my own struggles or my own experience in things could help people feel more at ease. So I guess that's a humanistic framework. In a nutshell, sorry, went on and on. In a nutshell, it's a mix of psychodynamic, Jungian, systemic, and humanistic um, theories. And some of, them, some of these inform my thinking and some of them inform my actual doing. That's really interesting. You know, of course, my training is, is very staunchly anchored within uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. But as I have aged and, and seasoned, I guess, as a clinician, uh, I've become more and more in, enchanted with some of the other theoretical frameworks that are out there, like Jungian. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I find schema therapy is a really nice intersection between some of the CBT stuff and the psychodynamic stuff because oh, the, the conceptualization part really, really does a nice job of understanding how attachment plays in, how we, we play out dynamics from our childhood in adulthood in very self-defeating ways. So uh, did you have a thought on schema therapy or is, or is that something that you use yeah, on a regular yeah, yeah. basis? No, absolutely. So I was trained in schema therapy. I'm, I was certified as a schema therapist. I love the model. I think it in itself is an integrative model that's, like you said, integrates um, psychodynamic thinking with cognitive behavioral strategies, with attachment theory. Um, what I like about it, I mean, it's a model and a model inevitably simplifies things, which some people don't like. They're like, you know, reality is complex. How dare you simplify things? But I personally quite like models and categories. I also really very much like personality systems like MBTI and the Enneagram, because I think they help us organize really complex knowledge they, they help us understand very complex things. I 
love two things I'm particularly drawn to in schema therapy. One is the mode work. So there's this thing called schema modes where they talk about in all of us, we don't just have one person, we have different parts to us. This is also a concept quite uh, utilized in another model called, called the internal family system, which I think is getting very popular in the States and around the world. Um, I love that because it is a very relatable concept. A lot of my clients really could relate to it by identifying different parts of themselves. You know, to give your audience some example, you know, in all of us, there's a healthy adult, which is the most zen, the most wise, the most emotionally resilient part of us. But then in all of us, there might also be a vulnerable child, um, a, a part of it that's like, that likes to run away. And sometimes I deviate from the original model a little bit and have people identify even more modes in themselves. Like there might be a raging teenager. There might be a midlife crisis, middle-aged man in them as well. <laughs> so that's how I know... Yeah, that's how I use the mode work. And yeah, adopting the internal family system saying in all of us, there is a family and they need to work with each other rather than fight with each other. And the other thing I really like about schema therapy is that it's, it focuses a lot on the co corrective experience um, that people could have in therapy or in any relational experience. If they call it, limited reparenting, which could be controversial, the idea of reparenting. But what it really means is to provide people with an experience that is contrary to the traumatic experience that they had, so that they can have an embodied experience of what is corrective. They can start to trust. They can start to feel safe when they are with another person. The idea is simple. The execution and the actual happening is really messy and complicated. Um, for example, people might have really defensive pattern where they would attack people that they feel drawn to or begin to feel attached to. And as therapist, client pair or a coach, coach, coachy pair, or whatever pair you are, you need to work through these things rather than playing along with the original script. And it could be really difficult because the script is powerfully drawing you in and to resist the temptation to play the script again and to repeat the same traumatic experience. It's really hard. It takes a lot of self-awareness and processing and courage. Right. Like if it was easy to do, we would just do it automatically. Right. Yeah. Isn't it fascinating to see a client who has a mode that they have sort of put to the margins of their, of their self and will not let in. They can't even have a sideways glance at themselves. And what I try to tell them is like, you don't, you're going against yourself. You don't have the option of marginalizing a part of yourself, especially one that's survived mm -hmm. trauma for you or had to do certain things to get through certain situations. But it, it is amazing how we all will pick up parts of ourselves, put them outside the club and not allow them a seat at the table. Uh, you know, and yeah. it's, it's a, it's a way of getting through, but it, you know, you never feel whole when you're like that. I love the way you put it, like there's a club and yeah, a part of you is being excluded. And if we have experience of being excluded ourselves, imagine how sad that part feels. They, they have been outcast and it's a horrible place to be. And because of that, they may rebel against the entire system in the form of raging or coming out in unpredictable times. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think of especially modes that have been asked to bear a particular load, right? Say to endure ongoing abuse as a child. And perhaps Mm -hmm. the best thing to do in that moment was to have a freeze response and to simply not fight back because it would have made things even worse. But so often with folks with trauma, because they'll blame themselves for not doing something. But in fact, that part was enduring the situation the best that it could at that time. So to, to be punished for trying to do the best that you could to preserve life is, is just such a, uh, such a tragic outcome ultimately that you see so much in, in trauma work, or certainly I have anyway. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Mm. And in the Jungian theory, that's also our shadow, the parts that we don't face, we don't accept. But it is a part of us, so in, in one way or the other. They will haunt us, well, we'll have to face them. <laughs> yeah, they're the invisible hand that guide our day-to-day life, and we can either choose to acknowledge their presence and integrate them, or we have them just yeah. operating anyway and uh, with, without any of the upside of awareness. The, the other thing I find really fascinating about schema therapy is sort of the detective work around the, if you have, say, someone, you have someone with the core beliefs of emotional uh, deprivation and defectiveness, Someone might choose a freeze response uh, vis-a-vis like approval seeking or self-sacrificing, things like that, uh, versus you get other people going the other way, a fight response with grandiosity, entitlement, things like that. So the exact same problems, but can manifest so differently on the surface, depending on whether someone's oriented towards fight, flight, or freeze. It's just fascinating how that works. Yeah, exactly. And going back to my point, isn't it wonderful that we have a model that helps us understand this really complex and messy happenings? Absolutely. So, Amy, I want to ask you some questions about the uh, the podcast. Uh, why did you decide to start a podcast? Let me think. I, it's, it's a while ago now, and I'm not extremely active. I I don't think it's my prominent mode of expression. And I think that in some way I'm more comfortable in not um, speaking and podcasting probably isn't my most comfortable mode of expression. But I also acknowledge that not everyone absorbs information by reading. It's kind of about equity, you know, like everyone needs different things to reach the same outcome. We don't all need the same thing. So yeah, it, it's, it takes a lot out of me actually to, to prepare for it. Um, I can get a bit of a stage anxiety I feel very self-conscious about my accent and putting myself out there isn't easy, but it does get easier. No, I really appreciate your uh, vulnerability around that. I feel very similarly in that sense. I like, I find after a podcast, I am often really quite tired and I just realize physiologically how, how much I've had to get up for that. So no, I really appreciate yeah. you, you also uh, sharing your experience around that because it, it is a lot of, uh, you know, you're putting yourself out there as clinicians. I think we always are really cognizant of, you know, reputational kind of things or just making sure that we're coming across in the, in the way that we'd hope to represent ourselves. It's, it's not, it's not easy. Yeah. And about that, I don't think it's something I could control fully. I do my best to be honest and mm, be myself, but I can't control the outcome. No, absolutely. You put it out into the world and then in good faith, and then I guess you have to see what happens. So whether it's in your individual work or in the context of the podcast, what's the narrative or story that you feel that you've been building 
on eggshell transformations or again, even just in the context of your private practice, like what is the story that you are working within or trying to build or, or try to trying to attune people to? Um, I'm not sure if there's a story per se. If there is, it's the story of someone being sensitive and intense all their life, feeling misunderstood, coming out and thriving and being who they are. That would be the narrative that I would want people, the experience I want people to have. As for where it comes about, it's part personal, part clinical. So personally, I've always been an intense and sensitive person. And as a young person, I didn't feel I was understood. But as I look into literature and I look around and talk to people, I realize, oh, actually, it is a community. It's not just me. There are people who also struggle with similar things. Clinically, I worked a lot. Initially, I started my work um, a lot with people with personality disorders. And from there, um, I see that um, people who are intense in their expression or struggle with emotional regulation can often be misunderstood and marginalized. So I kind of combined the two to create what I do now. And it's always emerging and transforming and changing shape. What do you think about the label personality disorder, you know, as someone trained within, you know, sort of a, a standard clinical mode of education, you know, that, that's a very standard term to use. Of course, the DSM would call it specifically a personality disorder. That's always struck me as lacking quite a bit of compassion and perhaps not even really accurate if you look at the conditions under which a lot of personality structure is formed in terms of adapting to very difficult circumstances. So someone with, say, quote-unquote, borderline yeah. personality disorder is probably an expert at surviving very chaotic, unpredictable, uncertain, familial, you know, relational circumstances. They just happen to have an attachment style or way of being that doesn't map so well onto maybe conventionally healthy relationships, but they're an expert in, an, in another setting. That's the way that I kind of view it or speak about it with clients. So what do you think about this idea of personality disorder versus perhaps... Uh, an adaptive profile mm. that needs to be taken in context. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. The word personality being attached to the disorder makes a lot of people, especially laymen, misunderstand it, who think that there is something inherently wrong in their personality. It's rarely the case. Um, I think innately some people could be more sensitive than others, but to form a personality disorder, usually people would have been through really chaotic bad trauma in their childhood usually not not everyone um and so like you said it's it's an adaptive it's an adaptation to what they have experienced rather than something inherently bad in them and the people do receive treatments and they get better so it's not something that has to be stuck with them forever yeah absolutely i mean i guess i just want to ask you this question as well off the top of my head a lot of what I see come in the door, though, perhaps it's just a function of being a clinician in private practice, is, let's say, maybe normal and expected reactions to very difficult circumstances uh, in life, whether it be the dissolution of a romantic relationship or unemployment or a custody family access issue or an illness or COVID or, or whatever. I, you know, I, I think we, we have conflated to some extent the emotional tools that we use to navigate very difficult situations with mental illness. But yeah. I also want to be very clear. There's folks who clearly have 
there's something organic going on where their brain simply is not cooperating with them. There's no obvious cause. That is very true as well. And you mm. know, th there's a place for medication. How do you conceptualize mental illness uh, versus normal, normal adaptations to life, even if those adaptations sometimes generate quite a bit of psychological pain or, or distress? Yeah, it's a really complex territory because there is this thing where people overly pathologize things. So even when it's an adaptive, an adaptive reaction, such as grief, bereavement, or COVID grief, like you said, it's still being considered something pathological. And the line between that and something organic isn't so clear. Um, I'm not sure I have a firm stance on anything. I'm not, I'm certainly not against medita uh, medication, <laughs> say meditation, medication. Um, I think it could be a very useful thing. It's also not for everyone. It's really complex, and I think we need to take it on a case-by-case -case basis rather than making a blanket statement to say, oh, medication is never good, or, or, or therapy always works. It's just nothing is 100% all the time. So we need to take case-by-case, case case and even for the same person, the situation, circumstances, and their needs may change. Medication may be helpful for a period of time to get them out of a really deep dark place and then they may want to try it without and to see if they can yeah use other methods to help no i really like that take i mean i think the way that i think about it is there's the pain that's inherent in life that we need to connect with in order in order to make course corrections in life to you know to let us know that things aren't going in the right direction but i think at the same time there's also just suffering right where, where it's unnecessary and it's there's no adaptive value to it so I work a lot with gifted people nowadays where they, they are very intense people who have very intense mental and intellectual processing. Sometimes they find themselves constantly having what feels like a breakdown. And there's a theory called positive disintegration to say that actually that is your way of breaking through something. You're actually working through something to go to another level. Now that's not to say they don't need help or they sometimes may even need medication. But it's a really important reframe to know that actually what you're going through may have a functional purpose. Why do you think it is that uh, folks who are gifted may be, you know, in some cases plagued by these more intense uh, e emotional lives? Is it, is it some capacity to access you know, a different frame on reality or being maybe more tuned to, to some, some aspect of uh, existential reality. I, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, potentially and anecdotally. So I haven't done brain scan on people and I can't speak for the science, but in my experience in a, in a lot of literature I've read, it does seem that people um, have more dense brains. They may have more I don't know. I don't want to speak about the neuroscience of it, but they do seem to have more intense experience of the world. They also tend to be more sensitive, meaning that they are very receptive to signals that they receive from the outside world, be it emotional signal, but also physical signals like loud noises, uh, strong smell, um, outfit that feels a bit rough, and they will have the sensitivity to those. And in the same time, they also have the sensitivity emotionally. Um, potentially, they pick up a lot more signals from the surrounding. 
Imi, are you familiar with the orchid dandelion sort of narrative or, or, or model? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dandelion orchid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Is that a way of thinking through or conceptualizing clients that resonates with you? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I do talk about it um, in my book, I think. And the, the theory is that some people are born more sensitive, but if you give them the right nutrition, they can absolutely thrive. So if it just means that they are more reactive to whatever is happening. If you give them a trauma, they're more likely to be traumatized. But if you give them good nutrition, they're also more, you know, they're also very likely to thrive. And it's a very helpful theory. Yeah, I really like that conceptualization. I've been bringing it in more and more with clients. One, one way I've been framing it up is if uh, listeners are familiar with the ocean model of personality, uh, the big five, yeah. as it's called, right? Openness, conscientiousness, yes. extroversion, agreeableness, and eroticism. You know, there's not a client I have come in that isn't higher than average at the very least on, on trait neuroticism. And yeah. I, I have used that as sort of a de facto measurement of sensitivity because really what that N mm. is all about is a proclivity to have a, re, a reaction or, or to experience negative affect in the face of stressful events. So, you know, when I'm doing an assessment with a client and they come back high in that, you know, some of the information I've imparted is, you know, you, you have almost a moral obligation to yourself to surround yourself with healthy relationships, things that you're passionate about self-care, things like that, because your nervous system is so just exquisitely sensitive and it will absorb both good and bad uh, th th that's around you, perhaps more than the average person. So I, I, yeah. I know I've, I found that a useful way of talking with, uh, with clients around that. What, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. And another metaphor that I sometimes use is that you're like a really powerful, fast car, and which means that you're at high maintenance. So you need the right sort of maintenance and fuel. But if you get the right fuel, then you're a super fast and powerful fast car. You just need the right maintenance. Absolutely. I, you know, autobiographies or biographies are, are something that I love reading. I love reading about like interesting or extraordinary people. And, and it's, mm. it's almost never the case that you find someone who's done something extraordinary who doesn't have a trait or two that is like fourth standard deviation in extreme that, which makes them very complicated people to navigate, but also extremely interesting probably to be around. And it's probably mm. given them a lens on the world, um, you know, that others just can't, can't access or a, or a seventh gear that they can get into. So, you know, I, I like that way, of, the way that you've described that it, it's sort of, again, mm. like you're, with a sports car will come certain realities with respect to maintenance, upkeep and uh, cost of ownership. You know, you, you can't really have one without the other. I like the ocean model too. Another good model to help us understand complicated things. And they are doing really interesting research on the correlation between traits. Yeah. Are there any, any uh, interest, not to put you on the spot, but are there any interesting ones that stand out for you or that you find you end up pointing out to clients or? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So lately I've been looking into the literature about the traits called over-control um, so meaning people who are highly conscientious. So usually they might be very high on the conscientiousness um, or the, the trait. I think sometimes coupled with neuroticism too, but these people tend to be quite stoic. So they, they don't like feeling out of control. So they might be pretty stoic. They may suppress their emotions, um, but they may also feel a, a bit more lonely in the world and a little disconnected. So, yeah, 
I can't speak for speak of it on the top of my mind, but they have certainly done research on, say, for example, impulsivity, and I think it may be correlated with one of the ocean traits too. Do you recall the name of the guest that you had on, I think not too long ago that did talk about over control? Yeah. I really, really enjoyed and resonated with, uh, with, with that podcast. Yeah. 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 Hope, hope Android. She's a ROBBC therapist. I do a lot of work with, uh, military and first responders, police officers, ah. uh, and it's, you know, it's predominantly male, but not exclusively. And you know, most of my clients uh, you know, who come in from these different populations tend to be exquisitely sensitive on the inside, but they have a way of being to the outside world that is very stoic. Exactly. No one, exactly. no one would ever guess, you know, the exquisitely sensitive being that is underneath uh, the, the surface yeah. there. Yeah. So I was delighted to have found a body of literature and even a particular therapy approach that is targeting this particular trait. It's really worth looking into. What, what's maybe a core intervention or two uh, to help those clients to connect with their inner experience, to get beyond the stoicism that presumably is used to protect them from the intensity of their internal experience? So I'm not, an, I'm not a trained ROBBC therapist myself, but according to what I've read and learned, um, increasing social connectedness learning how to signal friendliness to the world and also trying to do things more spontaneously are some of the treatment strategy, some of the treatment strategies. And I think there was one really interesting intervention in ROBBT about teaching people to raise their eyebrow, doing an eyebrow wag, something like that. <laughs> you can see me on the audio. So that is to signal friendliness. I think if people are interested, it's worth looking into it. There are books and even just online articles they can find that talks about this or go to the podcast that I did with Hope. Yeah, I highly recommend checking out the podcast. You know, she did a really good job of, of describing the construct and then talking about some of the ways that, uh, you know, we, we can try to help folks who have this particular challenge because it's, it's a big one. I would almost, as a clinician, have a client who's dysregulated than than a yeah. than a client who's overregulated. I, I find it very easy to work with dysregulation, but overregulation is, is can be such a tough nut to crack. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. In in the recent, I think I did. Uh, I haven't released it yet. I even did a role play with one of the therapists to to see what it looks like, and it's harder to engage because they people who are over controlled, many of them don't like to feel like a burden. They don't want to trouble people with their sorrow. So when you ask them how they are, they likely say fine. And they're not used to allowing people to see their distress. So if you are working with them in a therapeutic context, it's harder. As an employee, you're very happy with them because they're always so diligent and responsible. Again, I'm making generalization about the traits. Obviously everyone is different, but um, as a therapy client, it could be quite a challenge because I think perhaps as therapists, you also like to feel connected, like you're helping, like you're being leaned on in, in a way to a degree. Um, and people who are over-controlled are very used to dealing with everything themselves. So they may not depend on their therapist, not even in a healthy way. And this is because their experience, maybe childhood experience, might have taught them that there's no point in leaning on others, or it would even be damaging if they were to reveal their vulnerabilities. 
No, absolutely. <clears throat> if I think about my own therapy journey, a lot of what my psychologist has been really pushing and pressing me to do is vulnerability in interpersonal relationships, right? To be able to sort of unlock, you know, that what's going on in there. And I, I have found that interpersonal relationships really are key to pulling out what's what's really in there and going it alone, sort of the Navy SEAL model doesn't tend to work out. Uh, it works really well 30 seconds at a time. It doesn't work out sort of 30 years at a time. <laughs> so, you know, you, you arrive at midlife and you're like, hmm, maybe there's another way I could go about, uh, you know, navigating my internal experience and other people. Yeah, yeah. It's very strange. When you walk into the self-help world, there is a line of thinking that's kind of the Brene Brown vulnerability champion. It's teaching people to be okay with their vulnerabilities. But at the same time, you also get the other line of people who are very much about training you to be, um, just, just get through things, you know, be stoic and go ahead, plow forward. It's, it's a military training. I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive. There might be good things about both approaches that we could integrate. No, I really appreciate you making that point because I've seen the same thing too. You've got, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's a former Navy SEAL, David Goggins. And it's basically just like, you know, get your act together, get up, just do it, stop complaining, right? And and there's that sort of model. And so many people are drawn to it. You know, they call it radical self-responsibility or something like that. It, and many people are drawn to it. I do wonder if it's because that aligns with the cultural narrative. Um but I don't, I don't mean it's, I don't think it's bad per se. I think there are good things about it that we can draw from. I just think either, neither approach to the extreme is probably not super healthy. Like even the vulnerability approach, you know, if pushed to the extreme, um, I don't think that's healthy. With the sort of like buckle down model, I just would be concerned uh, that again, it would be to the exclusion of what needs to be processed or felt internally, even if it's not actioned, yeah. right? It's more just to be like, okay, that's there. I connect with that. Then go ahead and take the action anyway. But if, again, if you're just forging ahead to the exclusion of what you might need to connect with, I, I think that's, uh, that, that's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Good points. I like the buckle, buckle down approach. Just sum it up. Yeah. Yeah. Amy, I'd love to know, you know, what are some of your favorite process related aspects of providing therapy? Uh, I, I personally am fascinated always by what's going on in the room and I really try and use that. I love the idea of parallel process where whatever is going on in here is very likely a avatar for perhaps what's playing out, uh, in, in, you know, in their work environment, home environment, relational environment. Yeah. So what are some of the things that you're really attuned to in your relationship with clients or what are some of maybe the interventions you like to do that are specifically focused on what's happening between you and the client? I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah. Well, I think you just said it. I, okay. So there are these theories that say, um, there are different layers to a therapeutic context or a relationship in therapy. There is the task kind of the contractual layer, which is, you know, I'm the client, you're the therapist, we sign a contract. There is the projection transference layer, which is the unspoken projection that happens. Like on some level, I remind you of someone in the past or uh, I represent or fit into some kind, some of your longings. So there's that level. And then there's the level that I enjoy, which is the authentic, real human to human genuineness level, um, which is when two people meet genuinely as people, 
Um, so I enjoyed that layer of it. I mean, the other parts are a part of the work and depending on who you work with, um, the layer that would be the most prominent would be different. Um, yeah, I really enjoy the point where you have built a rapport with a person and you both know it and there's a connection in there. Mm. So, I mean, obviously it is within the therapeutic context, but the warmth between you and then the, the sense of connection, I, I keep using that word, but I can't find a better word, genuine connection, is, is, is really sweet and really can be really therapeutic and useful. I'm thinking of myself and my clients, but I'm also thinking of myself and my therapist. And so some of the most healing moments actually were when we have a joke, have a laugh. Um, and that is kind of a meeting of the mind. Um, yeah, sorry, it's a bit of a jumbled answer, but I'm, I'm actually thinking of myself as a client rather than as a therapist. And I enjoy that the most. And I guess subconsciously that would also make me value that part of the encounter. No, absolutely. You know, I think you had mentioned before resonating with that idea of emotional sensitivity and intensity. And, you know, I want to ask you as a, as a, as a therapist, how do you manage that piece while connecting with clients? Because, you know, connection, I found any way that, you know, connection involves an emotional investment and that emotional investment can pull on that temperament if you've got it and, and make the work uh, challenging at times, or, you know, you want to make sure you've got enough gas in the tank for the other people in your lives. And, and you're not just laying it all on the table for, for the client, you know, six hours a day, and then you've got nothing left. So how do you kind of, you know, budget your, your energy, uh, if I can use that term with respect to, you know, affording that loving kindness towards clients, but making sure you've got enough left in the tank to live the rest of your life? It's a hard one. I think it takes practice. Um, I think in the beginning, it's very easy for therapists to be burned out. But through time, you can find a sweet spot where it becomes not easy, but less taxing, where you feel like you could be genuine, you could be yourself, but also be professional and, and be therapeutic at the same time. So because it's not like you're putting on a mask and playing a different role, you're being yourself, but you're going at it as a therapeutic angle and try to be useful. I think that is the key to prevent burnout. And obviously there are other little things like having supervision or having more training and theories in your bag. Um, yeah, I, I don't think the sensitivity would have to be draining if you manage your role and the way you think about your role well. You try your best, but you can't save everyone. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think if there's something I've become just so attuned to over the course of my career, which is sort of 10 years now into clinical work, if I, when I, what I see in my trainees is, you know, they really struggle with control and having a sense mm. that they are the prime or maybe even only determinant of how the work is going to go. Maybe not fully connecting with the idea that the client has well their own free will. They have people in their lives influencing them outside. They have circumstances they have to navigate. They have a past. They have motivations. They have fantasies. They have projected like they have so many, so much going on. We are just one little drop in the bucket. 
And yeah, I, I try to advocate clients or excuse me, clinicians choosing metrics of success that they have control over. It's like, was I present in session? Did I deliver the material as, as mm-hmm. expertly as I could? Did I, did I connect, you know, to the best of my ability? That's what we have control over. We don't necessarily get to control what clients do with the, you know, with the wonderful information that we might try to give them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in, in some models like the CPT or, or, when it's linked to insurance or getting fundings, we like to quantify things, right? We've got all these questionnaires, the, the, what do you call it? The GA, I forgot what it's called, but you give your clients a questionnaire and in the beginning, the depressive level is 10. And then towards the end, you give them another questionnaire and hopefully their depression level is one or zero. <laughs> but I do think it would be a bit of a trap if you become overly attached to those outcomes. And this is when a systemic perspective, like I said earlier, comes into play, there are so many factors in the system and we are only just one of them. And just because someone is not changing in the time frame that we can we set or explicitly on the outside doesn't mean nothing is happening. A seed might have been planted or there might be changes that's not visible or maybe someone is not ready to acknowledge to themselves yet. They may not be ready to change now, but all of a sudden they may be able to change everything. We don't know. We just don't know. Um, So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right to have your trainee focus on what they do rather than the outcome. And this is not like trading stock or (laughs) some other professions where we can manufacture a result and quantify it and then get a bonus from it. Yeah, it's a very non-linear process, one in which you can present clients from informed consent, perhaps the the odds of the treatment working based on large aggregate, you know, studies involving, you know, hundreds of people, but to say to this person like I guarantee this therapy will work, you know, that that's a that's a very disingenuous thing to say for for the most part. I I just want to pick up on something really quick around the, you know, assessing outcome in therapy because I think I think it's such an interesting question. Um, I really like the acceptance and commitment narrative where we accept the experience of anxiety, depression, jealousy, anger, you know, whatever it is, and we remain committed to our value directions and we, we persevere despite these intense emotional experiences. And, and from that lens, you know, for some clients, let's say, you know, say before, you know, they're, if they're socially anxious and doing public speaking, they may never realize a huge reduction in their anxiety mm. prior to doing the talk, but they go ahead and do the talk anyway. They do the interview. They're able to chair the meeting. They're able, able to do all the important things in their lives that really matter, despite feeling profoundly anxious, maybe along the way. What, yeah, what do you think about yeah. this idea of maybe willingness to experience being more important than not experiencing a particular emotional outcome. Yeah, absolutely. They have a phrase for it, experiential avoidance. And the ACT people have done a lot of research around it. I do think it's a really lovely model. Um, I, I love the idea of yielding to your experience rather than fighting it, no matter what it is. And the first thing to do that is to yield to your emotions, whatever it is that you're feeling now, even though it means that you have to lie in bed and not move just to feel it for 10 minutes it's still better than fighting it because some other outcome would come out that we can't, it's undesirable if we fight things constantly. So I love the ACT model. I found it just to be such an empathic and compassionate and just really real model, if I can use that. Yeah, yeah. I find it just maps so well to the human experience. And again, as a clinician in private practice, uh, you know, many of the folks I'm seeing are not sort of uh, diagnostic, let's say. There's just a lot of life going on. And mm. I find the ACT model maps very well to 
to what's going against someone going through, say, like a divorce. It's like, yep, the next year of your life is going to be very challenging. And and yet we want to remain to, committed to value directions regardless while carrying the distress, the uncertainty uh, of this little mini catastrophe that you are, you know, waiting your way through. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to ask you about James Hollis. I have yes. you to thank for introducing me to him and uh, via the podcast. And wow, what a uh, what a gift to the world uh, that gentleman is. Well, he is. I know. I was so happy when he agreed to talk to me because it's almost two years prior to me starting the podcast. I discovered his work and I read almost everything he wrote before I contacted him. And so I was pretty starstruck when I spoke to him. So he wrote about a wide range of topics, but the one that I connected to the most is the one about the second part, second half of your life. This idea that during the first half of your life, people follow um, generally uh, a kind of script that the society or the parents has laid down for them and they might have lost their true path of will. Um, and in the second half of your life, you exercise your free will, and then you do something that's more true to your core self. That's me kind of butchering the theory and not explaining it very well. And I might have said something that is too much of a generalization, but that's the gist of it. I mean, you know, he's written a lot about helping people to uh, find their path when they realize in the second half of their life, they want, they want to truly live for themselves rather than some external metrics. Absolutely. The, yeah, yeah. Finding meaning in the second half of life, how to finally really grow up, I think is, you know, perhaps one of the the best books that, that I've read certainly recently, per, per, perhaps ever, uh, if I could be so bold, you know, it, it makes me almost want to sort of throw down in my own practice on doing that kind of work exclusively, like helping people to navigate these life transitions, mm-hmm. because I think they can be so challenging. And there's the idea, I, I love his metaphor of, you know, you can either embrace the anxiety and move into the growth, or you can kind of become depressed and kind of just go back to sleep. And and I do, what I've seen over 10 years of doing work with people is that gateway frequently presents its, itself to people midlife. It's like, you, you can either go back to sleep or you can sort of wake up and, and, and move into the anxiety. I, I don't, is that, is, do you do a lot of that kind of work helping p- people navigate transitions? Yeah, absolutely. And like you, I've thought about shaping the practice to work with them too. Um, yeah, it's an, it's a disconcert and an exciting time. Yeah, it's amazing how discombobulated people can be. But then I always, you know, I, mm. I try to normalize that and say, hey, this is this is just exact. There's there's part of this experience that is just so healthy and constructive. You know, never let a crisis go to waste. In other words, right? It's like, I think part of the other reason why I would like to work a lot more with people navigating these transitions is because people are. I find people are open to change in that mindset more so than at any other time. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm. So they're receptive. Yeah, namely because things have gotten so bad in, in some particular aspect yeah. of life that is like, okay, I'm willing to do entertain anything other than what's going on right now. And that's one thing I want to point out in case your audience think midlife means you have to be in your midlife. You know, This whole idea of midlife can happen at any time. You can be in your early 20s and have a midlife crisis, especially in today's world. So I don't want them to think there's a particular age. Although James Hollis did say it's normally in later, like chronologically later half of your life. That's that's what he said. Um, I think it could happen potentially earlier or later. 
Oh, for sure. Another person who we have both had as guests on our podcast is uh, John Fredrickson. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I found yeah. him just to be such a wise soul and really, really just enjoyed get. I felt like I was in supervision on the podcast, basically. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Yes, yes. He, he has such clear framework and pathways in his mind. Um, and therefore, he's able to explain things in very clear uh, sequential way for us to follow and understand. I really appreciated his input. No, absolutely. Yeah, he's able to take uh, a, a lot of very abstract ideas and, and conceptualize things very quickly, bring it down to earth and give oh. some direction around uh, around what to, what to do next. I really actually like that intensive short-term uh, dynamic therapy model just in general. Uh, it, it seems to be incredibly helpful for clients with uh, somatic uh, manifestations of anxiety where the, you know, a lot of tension headaches oh. or GI upset, things like that. It's actually those emotions kind of being ported into the body as opposed to being experienced. Uh, it, it's a regulation strategy at the end of the day. It's, it's just very, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Regulation strategy. Amy, what's the biggest mystery for you in psychotherapy at the moment? What's most on your mind? What, what's the biggest stone that you, you know, would love to turn over to find the answer to? I am honestly not entirely sure because <laughs> um, I get interested in different topics depending on what I read, what I listen to, and then I tend to have a boss of excitement about particular things and then got deep into it and then came out. And I think at the moment, I'm a little bit interested in the intersection between psychotherapy and other fields. I'm changing shape myself. My practice is also changing. I'm very interested in you know, like combining therapy with other ideas and disciplines to see what we come out with. At this point, I'm not very clear about um, Yeah, so I'm interested in that. And there have been many discoveries that came out of that. For example, systemic theories, um, I think, came from some kind of scientific model and combining that with psychology. So I think there's an exciting thing there's something exciting that we could do in that um, i need to think about this actually yeah i mean there's no shortage of mysteries you know that are out there i, I think that's what keeps the job fascinating for me is just that there's so many yeah I, you know, it's the classic thing, the, as the island of my knowledge grows, so do the shores of my ignorance. You know, it's, it's just this, losing, propo yeah, this yeah. losing proposition where the more you know, the less you know. Yeah, there are particular um, population fields or manifestations that I'm really not an expert in. Something like autism or female autism is something that I want to learn more about, but I honestly at this stage need more training on. I'm also interested in people who have been through religious trauma. That's another thing I want to look into. I'm also interested in immigration psychology. I'm also interested in this coming out now. I'm also interested in the impact of sibling rivalries. So these are some of the topics that are floating um, that I want to look into. And are these hypotheses that are born from your clinical experience? Is it just sort of sitting with clients yeah. for many, many hours starting to formulate ideas like, hey, I wonder what's going on with yeah. that or I'm seeing this, I'm seeing that? That's right. Yeah, those, those are such a that's such a rich mine for interesting uh, ideas. Mm. It's unfortunate though how often separated the research and clinical worlds are. It's hard to be it's hard to do both at the same time because they're both such time intensive 
undertakings to, to do it correctly. So it, there, there's very few folks who are positioned to be able to do both. But yeah, really, really interesting wellspring for, of ideas that clinical work. Mm. What about you? What are you excited about right now? You know, my background is in neuroscience. So, you know, I'm always yeah. nesting my understanding of my clients within some sense of that. Okay. At the end of the day, this mm. is all residing within the brain, presumably. And, you know, I think for instance, you know, when working with clients with depression, I'm always trying to figure out, you know, and say they're amotivated and not doing the homework and not engaged and heart, having trouble getting, you know, activated. I'm always like, okay, what's the line between where the depressive illness ends and their own motivation, free will takes over? Is there even a difference? Right. right? It's like, how, what, what is a fair ask yeah. of this person? And when I terminate therapy because they're not engaging, is that actually fair? Is, you know, do they actually have free will with mm. respect to doing anything different than what, what they're doing? Or has their brain been taken over by this depressive mm. tenor? So you know, it, it's where our free will, I guess, interfaces with what our brain uh, automatically generates for us. I'm, I'm fascinated by that that interface. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. This is why the narrative that James Hollis has, I find to be so interesting because it talks about all the unconscious patterns that we have to navigate or the, the forces that we have mm -hmm. to navigate and that we may not be aware of. But again, they're the invisible hand that are influencing us on a day-to-day -day basis um, and can have profound mm -hmm. influences. So the more aware we can be, the better. But again, like he says, the problem with the unconscious is that it's the unconscious. So I, I guess that's mm -hmm. another question too, is how deep do we go? I remember asking my own therapist, I'm like, how deep do you think I could go in here? She's like, well, as deep as you could tolerate. And I, like, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I was like, uh Oh, we're in trouble. But yeah, it, it, how deep does the human psyche go? And then the questions of consciousness, you know, perhaps windows into that through psychedelics or, you know, I, I had Adele mm. LaFrance on the podcast. We talked about lessons about loving kindness, uh, from psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. That was a you know really fascinating conversation about accessing dimensions of, of ourselves and, re and relations that you could never normally access. Anyway, I'll, I'll park it there, but yeah, there, there's a lot that fascinates me and that I would, you know, if I had five lives, I could probably fill them up with, uh, you know, books and podcasts about all these different topics. I think it's absolutely amazing that if you have five lives, you're going to be a psychologist all your five lives. <laughs> I admire that. <laughs> Amy, this is a question that I am always fascinated to get the answer from, from guests. What have you been the most wrong about or where have you made the biggest pivot clinically uh, over the course of your career? Can you clarify that a bit more or give me some examples? Sure. Um, I think. <laughs> I'll, I'll share a personal example uh, just to illustrate sort of the, the nature of what I'm wondering about. Uh, again, as I mentioned before, when I started in my clinical work, I was very staunchly anchored in CBT and, and still am to a very large extent, also very anchored in neuroscience. I, I think for a variety of reasons, I really downplayed the role of emotions in psychotherapy. And I thought it was very much about sort of reframes, core belief work, you know, uh, sort of an REBT style interventions, but I've completely pivoted, you know, based on personal clinical experience where I think emotions are profoundly important to therapeutic change. The experience of emotions is profoundly important. If the client's not feeling things, I'm probably not doing my job uh, correctly. I'm not in the right zone. So I've made this real pivot over time in terms of my own comfort level with emotions and tolerating the intense emotions of clients in, in the service of getting them where they would like to go. 
So I guess that would be an example. Yeah. So for yeah. so for you, what what have you course corrected around, or where have you pivoted? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's a real pivot or a slight turn. In I think like I used to be very attracted to models and skills. You know, I got trained in schema therapy, and I got very excited about doing all sorts of exercises. And I think as a beginning clinician, you feel safer when you have something to do. And a lot of clients like having things to do because they also feel like they're making progress when they have something to do. Uh, I think gradually I've learned to relax into the process and encourage people to do so. It's hard, especially in today's world, to trust the process and to trust the silence sometimes or to trust that just by having a good therapeutic relationship with someone, you're getting somewhere. It's very difficult. Um, but I really have learned to trust the power of that. I guess the most recent pivot would be that over-control thing that we mentioned earlier. Because I spent a lot of my professional life working with people who are struggling with dysregulation. Never had I thought that when you are too much the other way, that could be problematic too. Yeah, the, those so, clients are hiding in plain sight, I think. Yeah, it's it's easy to think they are fine and sourced. <laughs> because, yeah. Yeah, in a sense, they're pulling off the the facade that they're trying to manufacture, right? Which is that everything's great. Don't worry about me. You know, we won't focus on exactly. keep the focus on you, right? Exactly. Amy, just before I let you go, if people want to learn more, where can they go? Where can they find out more about you? Sure. So my website is hltherapy.com. And I have two books out. One of them is called Emotional Sensitivity and Intensity. And the other one is called The Gift of Intensity. It's coming out in October this year, the, the later one in America. Oh, that's exciting. I can't wait to pick that up. That will be great. Uh, Amy, thanks so much for making the time to come on the uh, podcast today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Right. I feel like we could probably have chatted like three hours. but uh, it, We can do this again. Absolutely. Would love to. Would love to. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we'll leave it there for the moment. We'll pick up the discussion hopefully at some later point. So thank you again so much. I really appreciate it. Take care. I really appreciate your passion and the knowledge you bring to this. You're clearly very passionate about the work you do. So thank you. Oh, thank you for saying that. I, I, I really you. appreciate that. And I do feel very passionate about this. Uh, sometimes I feel it to the point of having to constrain myself uh, in terms of my engagement. But, but thank you for saying that. That really uh, means a lot to me. Thank you. Cool. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.